And I saw a thumb, so sounds like everything's going well. Let's take the glasses off because I can't see with them or without them. Move everything into position, and you're saying that I can take off is what you're saying. Yes, sir. Okay, so here we go. Well, I, first, I want to begin really fast. In December the 12th, which is next week, that's our final lecture of 2021. We'll be back January 9th, 2022. So those of you who are looking for us during the Christmas uh, sabbatical, uh, we're going to be hiding uh, as we always are. Anyway, December the 5th, 2021, lecture discussion number 157, I hope, on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, First Kings 13, Second Kings 23. Okay, well, uh, we left off last week with a glut of questions. By we, I mean me, as usual. So today is going to be another summary or a re-examination, a gleaning, whatever metaphor, thesaurus that you need. The Genesis 9 Noadic Covenant being perhaps the premier subject uh, of today. So we're in Genesis 9, this fantastic Noadic Covenant. You can think promise, if you will, but that's where we are today. And, it, and I, again, I think it's the premier subject to investigate further after lecture number 156. So that would be been last week. Hopefully somebody remembers that I asked why color is the sign of this. Because it is. Why did God have color as the sign of the Noadic covenant? That's an everlasting promise made by God to the animals and mankind. That's Genesis 9.16. Genesis 9.16, he makes a promise to mankind and to animals, and his, his sign of that everlasting promise is color. And that's, of course, I think quite mysterious, but certainly uh, I, think, I believe that we can solve a great many of it. At Genesis, Genesis 9.16, God refers to the animals as every living creature of all flesh. Once again, the nefesh sha'ah or ha'ah, is the Hebrew used, same as Genesis 120, 124, 128, 130, 27, 219, 910, 912, 915, 916. Notice what I said there. 910, 912, 915, 916. He is replicating, he is repeating Genesis 120, 124, 128, 130, 27, and 219. That is what God is doing here, and it's incredible. God always identifies his breath of the spirit of life as being in mankind and animals. Again, the nefesh, the rachach, and the ha. Okay? Now, I'm not pronouncing those right, but I'm doing the best I can for a uh, half-Gentile. I should mention that God at Genesis 9.13 reveals that he will put his color, his colors in the cloud. Now, that should have immediately grabbed your attention. I hope it did. Did I spell cloud right? hope so. Yes, I did. Yay me. I'll invert the U and the O sometimes. Because I'm old. I always watch these videos. Nine steps to prove you have dementia. Because obviously I'm worried about it. I, I should... So anyway, God puts his colors into the cloud, he says, the cloud. And so coincidentally, and again, there's no such thing as coincidentally in Scripture. Omniscience preempts all possibility of coincidentalities. Or co coincidental. Coincidentalness? Can I, is there such a thing as coincidentalness? I added ness to it. It's got to be a word. 
God uses the same Hebrew word for cloud in Genesis 9.13 when he says the color will be in the cloud as he does for the cloud at Exodus 14.19. What is Exodus 14.19? Well, Exodus 14.19, as you know, is the angel of God. So that's Jesus Christ himself. That is the angel of God. Not an angel of God, but the, the singular angel of God, Jesus Christ, Exodus 4.19, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel and moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. This is, of course, the Red Sea crossing. So he's using the same word for cloud in the Noadic covenant as he uses for the cloud in the Red Sea crossing. So Christ is in his pillar of cloud at the Red Sea crossing. Ezekiel 1.4, where it describes Christ as being in the pillar of cloud. Same with Acts 1, 9 through 10 and 2 Kings 2, 1. <clears throat> so Christ in the cloud and he is giving light to Israel, but he is giving utter darkness to the Egyptian army led by Pharaoh, who militarily thought he had the Israelis penned against the Red Sea, ripe for slaughter. So again, let me repeat that. I have for Israel, I have light for Israel and I have darkness For the Pharaoh. Now, light and darkness. That should got your attention by now. I hope it did. Light to Israel, utter darkness to the Egyptian army. Exodus 14, 19, Genesis 9, 13. Word for word, the same word form for cloud. So, got all that? I hope you do. Anyway, notice the light and the darkness for for today. That aspect of light being separated from the darkness. He separates the Egyptian darkness with the Israeli light. And I, and I said this last week, Genesis 1, 3 through 5 is a prophecy. Where he separates the light from the darkness. That's a prophecy. And it's being displayed here at Exodus fourteen nineteen. Last Sunday I made the point, yea, a point... Page 2. Wow, I got a point on page 2. That the ultimate fulfillment of the division of the light from the darkness is, it was, if you want to think of it in the past tense, Revelation 20, 10 through 15, Revelation 21, 1 through 5, Revelation 21, 22 through 22, 5. That's where he fulfills separation, the separation of the light from the darkness prophecy. So, the utter darkness and the fire, we talked about it last week, the black fire of the lake of fire contrasted with the light of the Lamb of the city of God. Light from darkness. He does that with the pillar of cloud, and then he puts his colors inside the cloud. And the lake of fire, as we discussed, is eternal darkness, it's blindness, it's fire, and that's all it has. It's the only thing that is in the lake of fire besides Beings that have chosen to go there is eternal darkness, blindness, and fire. The new city of Jerusalem is light and the pure river of water of life. And that is all. That's only. There is no darkness there and there is no light in the uh, lake of fire. So for today, I'm speeding through this. This is this is what I'm trying to do is kind of combine these two lectures today because I think um, that is the proper way to approach it. For today, God sets, he places his colors into the pillar of cloud. 
testifying of his promise to resurrect to everlasting life every living creature of all flesh. That's Genesis 9, 15 to 17. The promise has this everlasting component. So we have a noadic covenant, and he says that it is everlasting. So go grab your synonyms for everlasting. And I believe that that promise, this everlasting component, is what defines, I think this is becomes the definition, if you will. That is the definition of the Noadic Covenant. If you're going to say one or two things about the Noadic Covenant, if you're going to say, the first thing you're going to say is that it's everlasting. The second thing you're going to say about the Noadic Covenant is that it has color to it. Oops. The third, the third thing you're going to say about the Noadic Covenant is that it is for animals. The fourth thing you're going to say about the Noadic Covenant is that it is for humanity. I said last week, lecture 156, I said it at page 13, as a matter of fact. I had to look it up, make sure I did. And when I realized it was on page 13, I knew that there's a the Cliffside Statistical Analysis Committee has told me things about page 13. Over 25 plus years. Now, a lot of people thought that I only began teaching um, uh, with the advent of Cliffside. And that is not true, of course. I taught many, many years before that. Both the theological positions. I did Bible studies at different churches. I did Bible studies in this house. So I've been doing it for a long, long time. Easily well over 30 years total. Maybe even longer than that. I think I started in my 20s and I am in my... <sighs> Let me do the math. Almost 50 years of this. that crazy? It, I, I, sometimes I just can't believe it. And I had some periods where I wasn't, uh, I wasn't active, but mostly I was. I was either in teaching high school or I was teaching in Christian school or I was teaching Bible studies in, in a church or I was doing something. But for the last 25 years, I've kind of had to, been in a cliffside mode, even though my Bible studies at a large church here in town that's how we began. I was in a big room that they gave me and on a Friday night. And I'd have, I had maybe 50, 60 people show up every Friday. I did that for a year or so. And that eventually metamorphosed into cliffside, which is not on a cliff and is not beautiful and is not downtown, as we all know. Anyway, I know statistically over 25 years, it's been revealed that by page two, Page two, 36% of my audience is comatose. I, I know that right off the bat. I can, that's just how it's been. By page 13, <laughs> you can imagine what the, it's logarithmic and incre- as it increases, you can just see that the, the number of people by page 13 who remain cognitive is numerically insignificant. So it's, uh, it's zero. Uh, the answer is zero here. So I know that. So when I mentioned that on page 13, I went, oh man. Nobody heard it. So I'm repeating myself. I stated November 28th that color is enmeshed with consciousness. So I not only have an everlasting element here, but I also have consciousness. Consciousness. Yes, I think I got it. Did I leave it an S? I'm, I hope not. So there's, there's, yes, I did leave out an S. In there. 
The color has something to do. It's relevant to consciousness, but it's also relevant to resurrection. So I have everlasting consciousness and I have resurrection. So all of those elements are involved in this color that he puts in there. And I made that, as I pointed out, as I said, I made that point, I hope, on page 13. I wasn't totally sure that I did. I saw it, but I hope that I did. But So I got color being uh, intrinsically combined with those elements. It's in the cloud. It's the nomadic covenant. It has something to do with animals. It has something to do with humanity. It's everlasting. It's got consciousness involved and resurrection involved. And again, I'm not sure I got that done. So here, here I'm doing it again. I want to put it on the board so everybody could see it. The Noadic Covenant, Genesis 9, has these incredible themes in it. And it has two that are absolutely incredible. They're the substructures, if you want to, want to prefer it that way. That's the color and the everlasting. And both are critical to understanding the meaning. So you've got to understand why color and why did he make it everlasting. Both are critical to understanding the meanings and the purpose of the covenant. But I believe the everlasting, which is the eternal, right? Everlasting is eternal. Everlasting is infinite. If you want to make a definition, you're going to go to infinity and beyond. Never mind. Okay, eternity. That's everlasting. It will never be not a covenant. And he says so. Everlasting. So the everlasting, the eternity element, that's the foremost. But the colors imply the eternity and the everlasting. And the eternity, eternity and the everlasting implies the color. <coughs> they fit together beautifully. And you see the central question of Genesis 9.16. The colors shall be in the pillar of cloud. And God will look at the colors. Why does God look at the colors inside the pillar of cloud? Why did he put them in the cloud? Now, I've extended it to the pillar of cloud because I think that's obviously what he intended. He's looking in the cloud, he says, at his colors that he put there. Why is he looking at them while they're in the cloud? Because he's in the cloud. Christ ascends in the cloud in Acts He's in the cloud, Ezekiel 1.4. He's on the throne, surrounded by the uh, cherubim. So he's in, in the cloud when he crosses the Red Sea, when he's over the, over the top of the nation of Israel. He's in the cloud when he is on Mount Sinai. And God put the colors in the cloud. And he will look at them. And it says in Genesis 9.16, he will look at the colors that he put in the cloud and he will remember that this is an everlasting. Now, remember, of course, a wonderful word that God uses about himself. He will remember the everlasting eternal covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh on the earth. So that's what he says. That's Genesis 9. Now, who's he remembering? What does it mean if God remembers a living soul? What's it mean? A living creature. What's it mean when he says, I remember a living creature? 
And he says it in Genesis 9.8, 9.12, 9.15, 9.17. makes it clear in the context that there are two groups that he is going to remember. One of them is Noah and his sons with him. So that's mankind and every living creature of all flesh. Everyone. Now remember, this covenant comes after what happened to a lot of creatures. They died in the flood. And he says immediately... Subsequent to that, I will remember every living creature of all flesh. The Hebrew is the same when it, living creature. It's the same as Genesis 120, 121, 124, 130, 19. Everything that he said in Genesis 120, 121, 124, 130, he says it again here. So, and also keep in mind this relationship between Adam and Noah. What's, what's Adam's job? It's to name each and every animal. Adam was to be fruitful and multiply. That was a direct order from God to Adam. It was also a direct order from God for Noah. Genesis 9.1. Be fruitful and multiply. Adam had nakedness involved with him, didn't he? Adam is covered by the blood of an innocent man. He is blanketed, if you want to think about that, and think of it that way if that helps you. He is blanketed by blood of an innocent lamb. Noah is covered by a blanket. I've always wanted to know what the blanket was made out of. Obviously, we are guided by Scripture to study Adam Adam and Noah. There's a sin... sin, uh, Can't speak. There's a synchronous issue here. We have to do it side by side. Synchronously. You add lead to a word, it becomes a word. L-Y. Both are assigned, both are spoken of as they have been assigned the image of God. Genesis 1.26 for Adam, Genesis 9.6 for Noah. Adam's association to the animal kingdom was pivotal, it's integral. Likewise for Noah. What is the thing that, that puts both of them together? It is the death of animals that swirls around both Noah and Adam. This is about the opposite of that, this Noahic covenant. If you want to think of it this way, the Noahic covenant is, is absolutely buried in animal death. Because animals would be killed and eaten. At that point, and animals were killed prior to that point. So the death of animals was everywhere when God made this promise. And the point is, yea, a point God would know that there is this amazing symmetry between Adam and Noah. Duh. Especially their impact of death on the animal kingdom. So he's implementing this covenant and repeating its impact on every living creature. Genesis 9, 9 through 9, 10 is fantastic because it starts out with this, what you, whatever you see this word, right? When God says, behold, something unbelievable is being said. He says that in Genesis 9, 9. Behold, I establish my, I got to jump up and down. Behold, I establish my covenant, my promise, my everlasting promise with colors. I, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, and with your descendants, which again is all of mankind. Then he says this in fantastic word that comes next. After this is part of the behold. He does it with his with Noah, but the behold 
is also has this fantastic and to it. And, and with every living creature, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth, all of these animals, God repeats every living creature four times. He's four times he wants you to know that they are every, that every one of these is a living creature, just in case you might overlook the significance of what he's saying. God will remember every living creature when he looks upon the colors that he put inside of the pillar of cloud. That's his promise that he remembers every creature. Again, how many creatures are dead? Billions. He put colors in the cloud and says, I will remember them. And when he remembers things, that's a good, a good deal, isn't it? Because being remembered by God is salvation. Luke 23, 42. And salvation is not just resurrection. It's resurrection to eternal life. Resurrection is not guaranteed by, I'm sorry, salvation is not guaranteed by resurrection. You can be resurrection unto eternal death, again, like a fire. So salvation is eternal life as God defines life. Now, why would this covenant be eternal? Again, why is an eternal covenant necessary here? Because the Mosaic covenant is not eternal, it's temporary. It's a temporal covenant. So why did he make it an eternal one, because it has to be. It's absolutely necessary. There is no other choice. This covenant must be eternal. Omniscience means that there is no other choice. He makes the choice every time. I play a lot of chess, as you know. I play it every day. I'll play it tonight. I do it usually before I go to bed, and I play computers because computers like me more than people, so that's how I do it. And they don't, they don't humiliate me when I lose. They don't mock me. Well, occasionally they've typed into a few computers this mocking aspect. But, uh, I do it every time. And at the end of every game, I usually play about 70 move games against the higher level, uh, uh computers. It takes me about 70 moves to, to beat them. If I beat them. Uh, at the end of it, I have the option of analyzing my moves sequences. And you're trying to get as many, if I have out of 70 moves, typically I'll get what's called the good move or the best possible move most of the time. There's brilliant moves and I don't ever have those. The, the, those are always zero. But the good moves are the moves that the computer suggests that you would make. The first choice of the computer. And usually I get about 45 out of 70 right. So I think that's pretty good. I'm happy with that. That's a good percentage. If I was a quarterback, I'd be making millions of dollars. If I was a baseball player, I'd be billions of dollars. So anyway, 45 for 70, I'm happy with that. God gets a 70 out of 70. He doesn't miss a move. Everything is perfect. So why is this an eternal covenant? Because it's perfect. The perfection requires that it's eternal. And obviously, an everlasting covenant is required for one kind of being. What kind of being has to have an everlasting covenant? That's an easy question. I hope you thought of it already. I have an everlasting covenant because I have everlasting beings. So that's why. It has to be that way. When he says that the covenant is everlasting, he is saying that those who are going to be underneath the covenant are what? Everlasting. They're eternal. 
Everlasting covenant is for everlasting living beings. And again, he says, God is the God of the living, Luke twenty thirty eight. I am the God of the living. What does he mean by that? Who are the living? Matthew twenty two thirty one through 32. He, he adds, not the dead. I am the God of the living, not the dead. So if you are one of the living, if he calls you a living being, and he did it four times in Genesis 9, he did it five times in Genesis 1 and 2. Or, let me think about that. Yeah, Genesis 1 and 2. He does it in Genesis 3. He does it in Genesis 7. If he calls you a living being, then he's the God of the living beings. Not the God of the dead beings, if you want to think of it that way. Genesis 9, 8 through 17 is testifying of the immortality of every living creature of all flesh. And their immortality is assured as life in the new city of Jerusalem and on the new earth. Revelation 21, Revelation 22. And the basis for this is Genesis 9, 12 through 9, 16. God said, I set my colors in the cloud. He says rainbow or translated rainbow. But I want you to think of it as colors. I set my colors in the sky or I'm sorry, in the cloud and the colors shall be seen in the cloud. Now I'm. Of intermixed colors and rainbow. The rainbow colors shall be in the cloud, and I, God, God says this, I will look at the colors and remember the everlasting covenant between God and the everlasting animals. That's what he says. And again, I'm adding the word color and colors to these verses to make a point, yea, a point. And that point is, is that God can do something. What can God do? He can see color. Mic drop. He can see color. Let me repeat that. He can see color. God sees color. That's a profound truth. God can see color. And seeing color reminds him that he hasn't ever reminds. No, omniscient God outside of time never forgets he's the rememberer. But it is a sign to him that he looks at. He wants to look at these colors. And when he sees them, he gets to see his everlasting promise. That's what he's saying to us. This is so important to me, I want to look at it. So God looks at something, there's a reason he does it. So for today, seeing color reminds him, that's a stupid heretical word from a human being, of his everlasting covenant. I can be stupid and heretical because I'm a highly trained professional. So God can analyze this. He can analyze the electromagnetic radiation of 450 to 490 nanometers and he can experience it as blue. And for example, red would be 620 to 750 nanometers of wavelength. Orange would be 590 to 620 nanometers. If you want, I could, I could list all the color frequencies in, in terahertz. Would you like that? Violet has the highest, highest frequency, 688 to 600, or 789 terahertz, and red the shortest, 400 to 484 terahertz. That is the electromagnetic radiation, because that's what color is. It's an electromagnetic radiation. The number of listeners who would want me to take the time to erase all of that and list the wavelength frequency and energy levels of the color spectrum. The number of people who would like me to do that is exactly zero, the same number of people that are still awake. Okay. 
Again, zero is a concept and not a number, as you know. Same as infinity. There's this wonderful relationship between zero infinity and infinity. Obviously, if you can see the electromagnetic electromagnetic radiation that is 450 to 490 nanometers and you can experience it as blue, then you are doing what God is doing. Because he can do that. Experiencing color is a function of something. It's a function of consciousness. Something most physicists do not believe that color uh, exists. They think that physicists insist that color is an illusion. They think consciousness is an illusion. They think both of those. It's common in academia to be confronted with that view, with human beings being assigned to automation. In other words, we're the automaton argument. They say human beings have no free will, they have no consciousness, and color is, a, is not real. It's just radiation. In other words, humans are basically unknowing automatons with the illusion of consciousness and free will. So they say, that's what the physicists say today. They've said it for a hundred years. And in Genesis 9 is a, an absolutely scriptural refutation of what they say. It is, it is as if God knew they were going to say it and he put in Genesis 9. He sure is lucky, this omniscient God. If you have been forced to listen to Cliffside for any amount of time, usually against your will, get it, will, then you know that the illusion of consciousness free will position originates in the Bible. Now, no physicist thought it up. It originates in, in Ezekiel 28:16, Genesis 3:4, Job 1, 9 through 11, Job 2, 4 through 10. And, and Psalm 10, 3 through 13. So if you had those and you combined all of those, all those passages and you, you encircled them, if you will, and you diagrammed them all out, you would have a diagram. You would have a Venn diagram of the lie of Satan. Is what you would have. The lie of Satan says that consciousness is an illusion and free will is an illusion and colors don't exist. That is the lie of Satan. Notice how I've attached the existence of colors to free will and consciousness. Not a surprise that atheistic scientists have embraced the lie of consciousness is, they say that consciousness is a self-delusion or a self-deception, a, a hallucination, they will say. They have embraced that lie and they say it every day in every school where physics reigns. And many, many times I have ranted about the hopelessness, the mystery, the purposelessness, the wretched sorrow that atheism promotes, what it causes in people. Because there's no hope in atheism. There's nothing but death. Atheism is the philosophy of death. So why do so many wish for such a hedonistic belief system? I have answered that question within the question. Hedonism is the default position of atheistic philosophy. If you are an atheist, you will ultimately descend into hedonism. There is, there is no altruism in atheism. There is no life. There is no goodness. There is no mercy. All there is is nothingness, purpose, purposelessness. 
The church, unfortunately, I should say, the contemporary church, generally also has adopted the free will consciousness as an illusion dogma of atheism. It's in the modern church today. It's all over the place. I can ask people a simple question. Do animals cease to exist? And I'll get a 99% answer from most church pastors. They'll say yes. That's atheism. I've said that before. Allow me to repeat the obvious response to all of that. Consciousness cannot be separated from free will. You can't have consciousness without free will. Nor can consciousness and free will be severed from existence. You don't have existence unless you have consciousness, unless you have will. All three are bound together and none of the three can be rent or sundered from the others without destroying all of it. If I take free will away from existence and consciousness, I've destroyed both existence and consciousness. The same thing for any of the three. There's this binding of these three. And I've never been surprised that there are three of these. Consciousness, will, and existence. I always thought that was obvious and not a shock. And the origins of all of these, all three, are restricted uh, to themselves, to itself, if you will. In other words, consciousness can only derive from consciousness. You cannot have consciousness without some pre-existing consciousness. Does that make sense? Likewise, um, will will trace to will. You cannot have will unless there is something, someone with will. Will, And existence must spring from pre-existence. And life must come from life, right? That's the law of biogenesis. Infinity comes from infinity. Time emerges from consciousness, beingness. And that's why Christ refers to himself continually as the I am, which you remember you might hear me say that in the, in the past. And what that means is I am the being one. I'm the first one with beingness. I'm the one from which all being comes. And he says that I am the resurrection and the life. That's what he's saying. I am the one from where life comes. The beingness, life again, his consciousness, will, and existence. All being comes from Jesus Christ who is the being. Again, life has to come from life and he is the life. That is the law of Christ. It is sometimes called the law of biogenesis. And all of the affirmations, affirmations sorry, are absolutely fundamental truth that atheism loathes. They hate those fundamental truths. They hate them with all of the, all of the energy that they can manifest. So what does experiencing color have to do with this? Why did he pick color? It's the why the color question. Why would God choose color as a sign of his covenant promise? That the world will not be underwater a third time. That's his promise. Genesis 1-2, Genesis 1-6 being the first time the world is underwater. Genesis 7-11 and 8-3 being the second time. And he says there won't be a third time. No water the third time. Obviously, there is something powerfully significant about seeing, about experiencing color. Always keep in mind the covenant promise sign applies to both mankind and animals. He says animals are everlasting. Mankind is everlasting. My covenant will be everlasting. And I have color in it. Clearly, God knows that animals can do something. Because the covenant's for them as well as humanity. Can you see color? You would answer yes. The physicists would tell you no. You can't. It's amazing, isn't it? 
But obviously, God would choose color for his sign for man and animals because both man and animals can perceive, they can recognize, they can identify, they can observe, and they can realize, experience color. Both can. And that's his point, isn't it? That's the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18-21. through 21. Genesis 9 validates Ecclesiastes 3.18.21. Why would God choose color for his sign to animals if they did not possess the capability to be impacted by color to see it? And his animals are incredibly colorful. Obviously, God knows animals can see color. What is the implication of that? And you should know something again about the consensus scientific opinion. The consensus scientific opinion Again, is that uh, the consensus scientific thought is that color and any and all colors do not exist. They don't exist. What you see as color is you don't see anything. It doesn't exist. And again, free will is an illusion and colors do not exist. Uh, how is that related? Because they are related. And why do they think that? One might immediately, a normal person might immediately hear them say colors do not exist. And on the surface of that, that that kind of that conclusion is one that's been generated by idiots. No one could defend colors do not exist, you would think. But you must remember that the scientific community is infested with monistic atheistic philosophy. They are infested, but they haven't always been that way. Max Planck, my hero, Isaac Newton. But the scientific community of our time is infested. It is infected with atheistic philosophy. And the color blue, to use their common example, is electromagnetic radiation with a wavelength of approximately 475 nanometers, a frequency of 750 terahertz, and an electron, 3.0 electron volts of energy. Okay? That's what they say. So to them, there is no color blue. Now, do you see blue around you here? Blue everywhere in this house. They say, no, no blue. No blue. And to be fair, in a sense, they are right. Blue does not exist in the physical realm. And that is a really big point. Colors do not exist in the physical realm. The physical reality. Now, I'm aware of the philosophically... The, uh, I, I, let me say this better. I am aware that philosophically, the phrase that phys uh, physical reality is a contradiction. The philosophers say physical reality is a contradiction. That's how they fight back. You're saying there's no color in physical reality, and they say there's no physical reality. So that's the that's the debate's been going on for centuries. George Berkeley. Uh, Rene Descartes, but I'm not going to run after that rabbit today. I've done it before. Obviously, if the color blue or red or yellow or green or indigo, Isaac Newton's favorite was indigo. Do you think you know what indigo is? You'd be wrong because Isaac Newton's indigo and your indigo are not the same indigo. They're different indigos. He had a different indigo than your indigo. Okay. That tells you there's some subjective element. I assume that my red's the same as your red, but I don't know your red. I can't tell what your red is. You can't tell what my red is. We just assume they're the same red, but they may not be. My red might be different than your red. 
So there's an individuality here, isn't there? There's a subjective element here. But in all of these colors I just named, they do not exist in the physical actuality. And then if they do not exist in the physical actuality, then where do they exist? Because they exist, don't they? I can make the case that time exists. I can make the case that love exists. I can make the case that thoughts exist. And I'm saying that blue exists. And red and green and orange, indigo. When you've answered the question, where do colors exist, then you have, when you've answered that question comprehensively, you will understand why God chose color as his sign of the Noahic covenant. That's why he's done it. Because the question is, is where do colors come from and how do they exist? And that's why he chose it, again, as a sign of his noetic, eternal, everlasting covenant for animals and human beings. Yay! The highly trained religious professional finally answered a question. I did there. Might not have noticed. And I know that everyone who heard the answer, everyone, the entire vast internet got it. And happiness now is abounding and my job is done. And I can fold the tent. I can fold the lawn chair. I can fold the laundry. Pick a metaphor. They all mean the same. The HTRP has another fantastic success. And I'm thrilled and the clapping and the enthusiasm is fantastic. Uh, I, I have another virus Facebooky thingy now, I'm sure. All hail the HTRP, huzzah and whoop. Okay, there I am. But just in case, by some freaky anomaly, there's someone in the vast internet audience who has not completely comprehended my logistical track to its inevitable conclusion. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying, how can that be? It was so perfect. I mean, everybody's got it. Everything is so transparent. It's crystalline, some might say. Others might say transpicuous. It is mathematically unlikely that someone has difficulty resolving the question. That's what I'm thinking. If colors do not exist in the physical reality, then where do they exist? And the overwhelming answer, and yes, I hear you guys on the internet screaming, the cacophonous screaming in unity. Color is an experienced property. You have to experience color. The color blue is only identified by awareness, by consciousness. The color blue, red, green, yellow, violet, indigo, orange, pick a color. All colors exist in the consciousness and that consciousness is what? John 4.24. John 4.24 tells us. I'm walking away from the... I'm walking away from the uh, microphone here, so I've got to be smart. That's a great joke by that one lady. She told her kid, don't be smart. And so she got what she wanted. So it was her fault. Never tell your kids, don't be smart. Anyway, if it's, if it's not in the physical, what we think is the physical reality, then it must be in what reality? John 4, 24. It must be in the spiritual reality. Only a spiritual conscious being can see colors. Color is a sign, a symbol that is an image of the electromagnetic radiation with a frequency of 475 nanometers and an energy of three electron volts. That's what it is. That's what I, that's what's coming into me, but I see it as blue. 
my consciousness reads that information and says, that's blue. And I can feel it. If you wish to consider blue as an archetype, you'd be right. You'll find philosophers and scientists describe color as an impersonation. Color, what we see as color is an impersonation of the electromagnetic energy, the three electron volts, a replication. The point, yeah, point, I know, how does he do it? Point after point after point after point, just knocking them out of the park. God has in Genesis 9 made it abs- oh I got to hurry made it absolutely as clear as possible that he is consciousness number 1. He's consciousness 1. He is the first consciousness. He's the being, the consciousness, all consciousness descended came from him. That's the meaning of the I am, the ime of Greek, the I am that I am, the ani shani in Hebrew. Exodus 3, 4, 3, 14, John 6, 35, 8, 12, 8, 24, 10, 7, 10, 11, 11, 25, 14, 6, 15, 1, Revelation 1, 8, 1, 17. Christ just goes over and over and over again. I am the consciousness. I am consciousness one, the first consciousness, the being from which all beingness comes. That's me. Says it so many times you can't stand it. And nobody knows it. God sees color. His mind processes his electromagnetic radiation and converts it to his color if he wishes. He transferred his spiritual, spiritualness or spirituality, his spiritness. Is spiritness a word? I've added ness to spirit, so now it's a word. He transferred his spirituality to his animals. Genesis 7:22, Ecclesiastes 12:7, Psalm 50:10 through 11. God says, "Every animal beast in the forest is mine. They belong to me. And the animals on a thousand hill. I know all the birds of the mountains and the beasts of the field, and they're all mine. That's what He says. They're mine, and they can see colors." The animals have consciousness. The sign of the Noahic covenant declares this fundamental Ecclesiastes 3.18-22 through 22 truth. Now to put a bow on this. Yay, a Christmas metaphor. Hopefully a few of you remember that on page 13 of lecture 156, November 28, 2021, I made the statement that color is connected to consciousness. Something that I am attempting to prove this week, lecture 157. That's what I'm doing. I also said, I think, that color is therefore coupled to resurrection. Though I couldn't find that in any of my lecture 156, only in my notes in the, in the margin. I think I said it, but if I did not, I'm saying it now. Color is coupled to resurrection. So I've made the case for consciousness. Now I'm trying to make the case for resurrection. So he's not only saying you have consciousness, but you have resurrection here. And color embraces both of those aspects. Notice the order of things. God establishes the living soul, the nefesh, roha, ha, ha, shara, from Genesis 1.20 to one thirty one. He ends the sixth day with something. What's he say at the end of the sixth day? Very good. Very good. You think those animals don't have consciousness? Would he say very good? No. It's very good. Those are eternal, everlasting beings. It's very good. He's going to remember them all. Genesis 9. Then God saw everything that he had made. Everything. That's all the animals. And he, and, and behold, it was very good. Genesis 131. Your Bible might not have the behold in there, but it is there. It is very good that animals are living souls. Because he says it over and over and over again. Next is Genesis 2, which is the Hebrew uh, method of recurrence. 
Genesis 1, Genesis 2, that's why I get the big money. Genesis 2 comes after Genesis 1. How's that for profundity today? Genesis 1.20 through 1.31 has been declared. Now Genesis 2, more specifically Genesis 2.4 through 23, presents more information about Genesis 1.20 and 1.31. So there's this repeating, this retelling, if you will, with additional material data. So first he gives you Genesis 1, and now he's giving you Genesis 2, which explains Genesis 1, if you want to think of it that way. The purpose of which is to explain why God did Genesis 1, 20 through 1.31. And what he did. Genesis 1, 20 through 131 could be the what, if you wish to think of it that way. And Genesis chapter 2 presents the reasons, the why. Genesis 2 explains Genesis 1. My point being, wow, a point is that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are the same chapter. We shouldn't have chapters. Chapters are a human construction. So we can do things easier. But they're inseparable. They're all one thing. They're conjoined. They're indivisible. And constantly repeating yourself, what are we, which is something I do, constantly repeating yourself is biblical. My method has been validated by Genesis. Anyway, do not read them as chronological. That's a mistake. Read Genesis 2 as intertwined with Genesis 1. If you must, to get the wow a point there, read them side by side. Choosing a verse from Genesis 1 and then reading the next verse from Genesis 2, that would work. You put them together like they're supposed to be. and that, If you lay them on top of each other, they are codependent. They're that codependent. Anyway, Genesis 2-7 is spectacular, as you know. And the Lord formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a nephesh haya. And you should note that Genesis 7.22 says that the animals have the exact breath of life in their nostrils. So he says nostrils in both places. The nostrils of animals and the nostrils of Adam. Nostrils being the critical detail that's repeated. Genesis 7.15 brings the ruha to the front, to the forefront, the spirit of life. And here's something that you should know. The spirit of life is a person. Revelation 22.17. When he says the spirit of life, that's a person. Him. There is this unceasing, impossible to miss reiteration over and over again, intentional redundancy with respect to the animals and mankind, specifically Adam. Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 21 also does this. All have the same breath. They're all the same physical body. The physical death at the, at the body is the same but for man and animals. All who have the nefesh, all are eternal beings and will therefore be resurrection. Be resurrected. Resurrection is a certainty. How much time do I got? Oh, wow. Did we start? Okay, we start late? Okay, we started late. Okay, I'm looking at the clock going, whoa, 99.76% of everybody listening is dead. Asleep. You've been going for 15 minutes and Oh, well, look at me go. I am so good. I'm going to slow down now. Okay, resurrection is a certainty because it has to be resurrection. There is nothing else. Creation has ended at Genesis 1.31. And God is the God of the living. He says, I'm not the God of the death, dead. I am the God of the living. Therefore, the colors of the Noahic covenant refer back to Genesis 1.20 through 1.31. And Genesis 2.7. That's what the Noahic covenant is doing. It's taking you back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. 
which is why these exact descriptions of Genesis 1.20 through 1.31 are repeated at Genesis 7.15 and Genesis 7.22, which is the flood. Genesis 7 is the great flood, as everyone knows. Genesis 8.17 is almost word for word Genesis 1.28. So he's telling you, go back and look at what I said in 1.20 through 1.31 and what I said in 2.7 and read now Genesis 8 and Genesis 7. Once again, the animals are described and it's the voice of God who is describing them in Genesis 8.15. It's his voice. He's the one saying it. And he's saying, ha ha Living beings, living soul, the voice of God, the word of God, John 1, 1. That's what he says about his animals that are mine. Psalm 50. And of course, Genesis 9 is again the voice of the Lord God Almighty. He's speaking. All you've got to do is look at what he said. Hear what he said out of his mouth. It's his voice saying it. It's not some dumb pastor who says animals cease to exist. God never says that. He says the opposite of that over and over and over and over again. And how is it that nobody gets it? 99% of the church has no idea about Genesis 9, Ecclesiastes 3. They don't care. They don't want to know. And again, that's monistic evolutionary philosophy has seeped into the church and overwhelmed the pastors. And it's a sickening situation. The voice of the Lord God Almighty, the Creator Himself, acknowledges that His everlasting promise, the covenant whose sign is experiencing color, is for every living creature and the animals that have the nefesh shaya. Those are everlasting animals. And God is remembering Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 at Genesis 9. Which means color is resurrection. Because creation is finished. And notice that God finishes things. Matthew 6.10, Matthew 13.53, Matthew 26.1-2, John 19.30, it is finished. Matthew 4.3, no I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews 4.3, Exodus 31.18, Daniel 9.24, Revelation 21.6, he likes to say, it's done. I finished it. He finishes things. Romans 10, 4 through 5. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's, he ends the law. Belief in Christ ends, terminates, finishes the futile attempt to save ourselves through works. Okay, final thoughts. I'm going to go... Psalms here. Let's see, 86. 11 through 13. This, I hope, is a good final thought. Teach me your ways, O Lord. I will walk in your, your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. For great is your mercy towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of hell. Teach me your ways. That's what the psalmist said there. O oh Lord, we need to know his way. What is he doing? What is he thinking? 
We have Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, dummy. Dummy's not there. I added dummy. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your idiot ways. I added idiot. My ways. We need to think like God thinks as much as we can, as pitiful as we are. Will God annihilate, extinguish, forget, discard his animals who have suffered and who are types of Christ because of their blood? That's the thought of mankind. That's the way, that's the thought, that's the thinking, the small thinking, the pathetic thoughts of sinful men. It's not his thoughts. He says, so are my ways higher as the heavens than the earth from your ways. How far away is the heavens from the earth? That's how far away his thoughts are from our dumb thoughts. And my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, higher. The distance between the heavens and the earth is the distance between his thoughts and our thoughts. Do not insult the merciful God of mercy, righteousness, salvation, loving kindness. Psalm 36, 5 through 7. I read that a few weeks ago. That's who he is. Don't insult him by assigning him the thoughts of selfish, wretched, puny, stupid pastors. Mankind who will tell a child that their animal ceases to exist. It makes me so angry I can just spit. He does not think like that. He does not think like you or me or them. He doesn't. His thoughts are magnificent. They're monumental. They're gigantic. That's why he has a 1,380-mile-high building. It's trillions of acres. Think like that. He is amazing. Think amazing thoughts. Then realize that you haven't even begun. We haven't even begun to imagine the majesty of his resurrection. That's why I always ask, how much resurrection do you think he's got? Once you figure out, okay, he's got this much resurrection, then you better make it much bigger. All these, I'm I'm so angry, I get so angry. All these foolish people that will tell me, well, of course, he's not going to resurrect 50 billion rabbits. Ah." (sighs) My goodness. His thoughts are not your small, pitiful, pathetic, nasty, dirty, wicked thoughts. His thoughts are different. And you can't even measure the distance. Okay. We'll shut her down right there. Pull it in under... What, what was it? Did I get under 60? Uh, yeah, 58. Oh! That means I get to use two more minutes next time. All right. Yeah. Because I save them up, right? <laughs> right. That's how it works.